Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I knew 100 percent he had killed Sabrina. No doubt. No doubt in my mind. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And before I forget, we started doing Killing Time as its own separate episode. And we've had a few suggestions in the Facebook group of, I mean, it was a, it wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a complaint, but it feels like our episodes sometimes end a little abruptly because everybody's used to having this palate cleanser of Killing Time in the actual episode. So we want to incorporate something like that to the end of our episodes, but we don't know what exactly yet. So we want you guys, like, let us know what you want to hear, what you want us to kind of lighten the mood with. Right, guys? That's right. 100%. We need we need some, uh, some direction, I think, because we put all of our creativity into killing time that we have nothing left anymore. Suck <laughs> yes. dry. We're sucked dry. Okay. And then also, this is part two of Sabrina Bev Jones. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and listen or else you're not going to understand anything that we're talking about this episode. And if you're mad that you don't listen to us, it's not our fault. We don't want to hear about it in the Facebook group. (laughs) Facebook group is for supportive comments only. (laughs) And that's Alexis that said that. That that wasn't me. Because the last time you said that, they're like, Jack, Jack really called this out in the Facebook group. (laughs) The best thing about people confusing her voices is that all the good shit, like having Jared as a boyfriend and stuff like that, people think it's me. And all the yeah. negative shit, people think it's Jack when the roles are really reversed. The roles are reversed. Absolutely reversed. So switch it up in your minds. All right. Well, Billy, what day is it today? All right. Well, today is June 2nd. And you know what that means? It's my half birthday. That's what it means. No. It's Alexis's half birthday. We don't do those. Okay, miss. I had a week of birthday things. Who hates birthday week? <laughs> I get a half birthday. I make the rules. I did not ask for any of the extra things on my birthday. Those were all surprises, but I mm, appreciated them all. I appreciate them. They were fun. Anyway, sorry, Billy. What That's else? All right. is, what else is it? It's National Leave the Office Early Day, which Tight. Alexis is not doing right now because it's eight o'clock and she's still at the office. She's still at the office. It's I Love My Dentist Day. Which is insane because, I mean, I think Alexis might love her dentist. My best friend is, Rita is a dentist, my best friend, and I love her. And I have been going to the dentist a lot recently, and he's okay. Dr. Nima in Santa Monica, thank you. Don't call him out unless you're getting some free dental work, Alexis. 
Dr. Nima, let's talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me up. Billy, What what is this other day? Yell fudge at the Cobras in North America Day. I don't know right. what that means. Yes. So apparently there are, and we're tech, getting this from checkaday.com, there are holiday creators, Thomas and Ruth Roy of Wellcat Holidays. So they're the ones that create all of these they create weird holidays. Not all of them, but like they create a lot of them. And this is what they said. As everyone knows, Cobras hate fudge. They and do. mere mention of the word gets snakes to gag and slither away. So on this day, people from North America go outside, point themselves south, and yell fudge at noon local time. What? This is the reason why there are no cobras. Uh, this is a bad day. Living in North America. I'm How did saying. they get this day approved? I, I don't know. that. I don't know what the official designations are. I don't know what they have to go through with this, but. We need to make up our own day. If they can get a day, yell fudge at a cobra, which makes absolutely zero sense. I feel like we can get a first degree day out there somewhere. Yeah. I think so. Yell fudge at a cobra sounds like a bad ska band from like. <laughs> Huntington, I thought it, it sounded like a bad children's <laughs> book, like a give a mouse a cookie Yell, kind of situation. <laughs> One of I those. It sounds like we've been talking about it for too long. <laughs> I just, I don't understand it. Okay. I'll just figure this out in my mind until the end of this episode. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. Last week, we introduced you to our first degree, Michelle. The setting was Grand Junction, Colorado. The year was 1997. Michelle was in her early 20s and working at a daycare center when she met the Beb Jones family. Dad Marcus, mom Sabrina, and little boy Daniel. In September of 1997, Michelle agreed to babysit Daniel so Marcus and Sabrina could spend the day together at Dinosaur National Park. Days later, the entire family was missing. Those who knew the family were terrified and at a loss for answers. That was until Marcus was found in a Vegas hotel room with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the jaw. Daniel had been found in an abandoned hotel room days earlier. And remember, when Marcus was found, there was a suicide note next to him that said, quote, Sabrina, initially you may not think this is the best. I can't change who I am. I understand your anger, but now as the years pass, that will diminish. This is the only way I can be without you or Daniel. Please don't hate me, Marcus. So that's the note. Now we're thinking, where is Sabrina? And why were Marcus and Daniel in Vegas in the first place? And what's the significance of this bizarre suicide note? Needless to say, Marcus had some explaining to do. When questioned by police, Marcus said that it all started on September 16th, which was the Tuesday that Michelle had babysat Daniel so that Sabrina and Marcus could spend that day together at Dinosaur National Park. When he was in the hospital and they were questioning him, he said that he and Sabrina had gotten back from Dinosaur National Monument and they had gone to a restaurant out at the mall and they had gotten in a fight at the parking lot and she had just walked off. And I knew absolutely not. Michelle noted something she'd picked up about Sabrina as the reason why this just wasn't checking out. She wasn't somebody who carried like a purse or even like a backpack. Sabrina would have like her wallet and her money in her pocket. And that was all she'd carry. This isn't a town that has like public transportation. 
It didn't even have a bus system at the time. It's not like walkable. You have to walk on the highway to walk back from the mall. It's not like, you know, a sidewalk that you could just walk a couple miles home. And I knew she would have called me. I knew she would have called me. So to pick back up with the story Marcus was telling police, he told them that Sabrina ran off. And at some point, he left the area where Dinosaur National Park was, and he headed back to Grand Junction without his wife. So we shared with you on our last episode, he then nonchalantly, without any sense of urgency or fear, without expressing any concern for Sabrina, picks up his son Daniel from Michelle, where he makes no mention of Sabrina being missing, running off, or anything, nor does he ask if Sabrina has called in to Michelle to check on Daniel. He then goes home, which is back to this hotel that he and Sabrina managed and ran. The next morning, he took Daniel to daycare. Yeah, so this story, the the fight happens, and then she just got out of the car and ran away, or she walked off into the night. We hear it so often. Classic. We saw this with the the Chris Spots case, Nadea Shabani, um, which was a subject of To Live and Die in LA's first season, where oh, yeah. he said that he's like, on my way to visit my uncle, we got into a fight, and we stopped in this wooded area, <laughs> and she just ran after being so angry. Oh, really, dude? Girls don't leave their stuff. Oh, she left her suitcase in your car. Girls don't do that. Yeah. And her cell phone and her wallet and keys or whatever. It's not going to happen. Just- girls, girls are like, uh, they'll put up with your dumb ass a little longer to get to somewhere where they can flag a ride home safely. Well, yeah. that's, it's funny coming from a man's perspective, right? Because maybe a man could be like, yeah, I could just be let off and like put wherever. But women live in a constant state of fear. And we would never put ourselves in a situation like that where you're without your things, you're with, you're nowhere near anything else. It's just such a, it's such a classic fucking tale that you hear from all of these idiots. You wouldn't unless you feared for your life. And if she feared for her life, well, then Marcus, that looks you makes you look bad, right? Yeah. yeah. Now it happens. We we just hear it so many freaking times. So many times. So according to Sabrina and Marcus's Melrose Hotel employees, when Marcus returned to the hotel with Daniel the night after picking him up from Michelle's care, Marcus was apparently alone and distraught. He told the employees that Sabrina had run away from him. So let's say that Sabrina was still in Dinosaur National Park. Why would he leave her there? Michelle eventually learns Marcus's story and none of it is checking out for her. Everything is sketchy. There is no way on earth she would have left her son. That was the main thing. I just knew she wouldn't have left Daniel. There was no way. So I knew that if Marcus was okay and Daniel was okay and Sabrina wasn't there, Sabrina was, I knew she was gone. Marcus's story continued. So according to him, after returning to the hotel, he asked his employees to call around to see if anyone else had seen her, but she was nowhere to be found. So here's where we get the answer to one of our questions. If Sabrina ran off at Dinosaur National Park, then why the hell did Marcus and Daniel end up in Vegas? Well, it turns out that Sabrina's family and friends were all based in Vegas. So his thinking is that if she's pissed off and leaving him, that's where she must have gone. So he takes Daniel and drives over seven hours to Sin City. Right. And apparently, according to Marcus, once they get to Vegas, Marcus, of course, is beside himself over this situation at hand. So much so that he decided the only way out was to end his own life. We already know how that turned out. 
And we all know that this is very suspect. So the question is, what are the police thinking as they're hearing this? The police are hearing him out, but then they learn that Marcus was doing more than just looking for Sabrina on this little Vegas excursion. He was apparently gambling, using Sabrina's credit card, because Marcus went on a three-day spending spree and he bought more than material items. He did mountains of cocaine, he had orgies, he hired sex workers, he bought designer clothes, and then he doubled down, he rented a Ferrari and drove that around for some unknown reasons, all while gambling and spending copious amounts of money. He seems very worried. Yeah. Or this is his final hurrah. He's going to spend all of this money. He's going to do all this. And then he's thinking he's going to kill himself. Right. right. Like you could look at it both ways, um, but he doesn't seem sad. No. Like, you no. know, I feel like you wouldn't want to end your life unless you knew there was some finality that had already occurred. Right. Because uh, otherwise there's hope, right? Like, I don't know. Seems to me that that would be the case. But anyways. Very interesting. So when the police questioned Marcus, he lawyered up immediately. And from where police were sitting, it seems as though he was more concerned with getting a lawyer at the time than learning about the whereabouts of his wife. I mean, same thing with the when he was in Vegas. It's like obviously not concerned about where your wife is at all. Absolutely. So a search of the van that Sabrina and Marcus had taken to Dinosaur National Park was conducted, and alarmingly, but probably not surprisingly to anybody listening, blood was found inside the van. Testing would still need to be done, but remember, this is in 1997, so getting these results would not be as an instantaneous process as it would be today. And there was also another curious discovery which police didn't know quite what to make of. So there were these purple thistle flowers that were found stuck in the undercarriage of the van. You could tell they suspected Marcus. I could tell that pretty early on. I think he had been pretty difficult with them when they went to see him in Las Vegas, when he was in the hospital and they'd questioned him. I think he'd been pretty, like, he'd had kind of an attitude. You could tell they didn't like him. Like, from that first interaction, they didn't like him at all. And I think you walk away like, okay, well, the police, the detectives, they know who did it. They're going to figure it out. Not how it happened. So at this point, Michelle has expressed to us that she knew that Sabrina was dead, which is horrible. But it appeared that this piece of garbage who killed his wife was not doing himself any favors. Whatever he had done was sloppy, and surely the police were going to arrest and charge him with this crime, right? Confidence that Marcus would be held accountable for Sabrina's killing was cemented even further when DNA results from the blood found on the van were in. The DNA was a match when tested against Sabrina's parents. Everyone who knew the couple believed that Marcus killed Sabrina, even the employees at the Melrose Hotel. So now the question is, what exactly is holding up an arrest of Marcus? Right. Well, for one thing... Law enforcement needed to locate Sabrina's body to confirm that she'd actually been murdered. You have to understand, you know, police are thinking like defense attorneys think yeah. in order. Yeah. You know, there's a defense attorney could be like, sure, she drove the van. She could have had her period in the van. She could have cut her finger in the van. And she could have been taking something out of the back of the van and cut something there. Like, yeah, that's not enough. You can't, pr- it's her van. It's her family van. Right. So either way, it's like, it's hard to know for sure whether Sabrina's been murdered, especially because Marcus drove so many miles through this desert in wilderness between going to Dinosaur National Park and also going to Vegas. 
thousands of miles. So where a, like a possible crime scene could be, could span anywhere. thousands of thousands of miles. Thousands of square miles. And while, yeah, at this point, there's a cloud of suspicion hanging over Marcus, weeks and months started to pass. Sabrina, whether she was alive or not, had not been found. And that caused the case to go from, you know, 60 to zero. It, it basically screeched to a halt. And Michelle observed this momentum behind the search dwindle right in front of her eyes. Initially, it did feel like it was being taken seriously. Initially, the police, you know, they wanted to get me right in, wanted to talk to me. And it felt like it was a normal, like the way it should be. I think they ran like one or two TV spots and that was it. And there was a little bit in the paper, but that was it. Michelle and the rest of the people in the community were at a loss about how to proceed. It seemed like Marcus was going to get away with murder. And at times, Michelle felt that no one cared about Sabrina. I think everybody was sort of waiting for, like, the police to tell everybody what to do. And there wasn't, like, we're going to have searches and there wasn't, like, missing posters or anything like that. Months without any updates turned into years. And people like Michelle, who cared about Sabrina but had no authority to do anything about what was happening, they felt paralyzed. There was no media attention. There were no missing persons posters, no vigils, no nothing. But Michelle was in her early 20s at the time, so she doesn't really have any point of reference as to how this case was handled from both the police and the media and their perspective. So Maybe what she was witnessing was the cruel reality of the aftermath of someone who falls victim to a violent crime. She tried her best to keep the search for Sabrina alive, but there was little that she could do. At first, that didn't strike me as odd because I didn't know what it should be. But a few years later, another woman disappeared. And it was a whole different, different thing. It was the um, Jennifer and Abby Blagg case. And at first I told myself that, like, the reason there was a difference was because there was also a missing child. And that's why it became, like, a national story. It was like every night on the news there was a story about it, like, for months and months and months. I mean, of course, that mother and that child also deserve to have people worry about them and to find them and to get justice. Of course. And I would never begrudge anyone that. But it was like, like, where was this when Sabrina was missing? Where was all of this? The case of Jennifer and Abby Blagg occurred four years after Sabrina went missing in 2001. The mother, Jennifer, and daughter, Abby, were taken from their home. The disappearance attracted incredible media attention and outrage from the community as well none of which happened when Sabrina vanished, and none of which happened when Sabrina and Daniel and Marcus were missing, by the way. So if we're talking children, when Daniel was missing, it didn't really cause the same media attention at all. Horribly, Jennifer's body was found in a landfill in the summer of 2002, and Abby's body was never found. Jennifer Blagg and baby Abby deserve all of the media attention in the world that they received. What we're saying here is that we think Sabrina deserved that media attention too. And then there was another case after that that was a missing mother. That case also went national. Paige Bergfeld was a mother of three who was kidnapped and murdered in Grand Junction back in 2007. 
Her body wasn't found until 2012. There was vast media coverage, concern, and an effort to recover her remains as well. And with two similar cases getting so much attention, Michelle realizes a stark difference between Sabrina and the other two mothers. I think a couple things. She was Vietnamese American, and I do feel like race played a part in it. They hadn't lived there, you know, more than a couple of years when this happened. And I believe because she was she was Vietnamese, I think that it just wasn't a relatable story. She didn't have like whatever hook it would take in their in the world of media at that time. You know, I don't want to beat up all the police so much and beat up the entire community and beat up the whole media. We have to raise the question here because Michelle has a point. All three of these cases took place in Grand Junction. And all of them involved mothers who went missing. But the two who received national attention were white women. So I want to bring something interesting up about uh, Paige Brigfeld, who was missing. She was actually a sex worker. And I actually watched a uh, 2020 about her case last night. And I was so pleasantly surprised by the amount of attention she received as a sex worker. She was an escort and a mother of three, really beautiful. But I was like, this this campaign to find her was like at the forefront. And that's great. But like, why didn't Sabrina get any attention as the, you know, a woman contributing to her community, right? She's Asian. She buys a hotel. She's giving back. She's this functioning member of society. She's amazing. And like, people just let her case die. And it really right. brings up a question. I mean, people who deny that racial bias in the media, whether it's scripted, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, it exists. I mean, people, for whatever reason, news stories aren't picked up as much as they are about white women, and it's bullshit. Well, I mean, you look at any infamous murder missing person case of a woman, and it's always a pretty white Mm -hmm. girl. Like, I can't think of one that isn't. And that's just how the media is. And it's super fucked up and it's extremely racist. And this is just one of many examples of that happening on a smaller level in there in Grand Junction. Yeah. I mean, they just found a suspected serial killer who had mutilated bodies in his uh, in his house last week. And yes, it was in Mexico, but the true crime community, if you had a guy that said he'd killed 30 people or whatever, dozens, dozens of people would be, oh my God, what is this thing? But you know what? It happened in Mexico. People weren't, it wasn't white women. So nobody is even talking about it in true crime. That's so crazy. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but we're just, we're not going to deny that it exists because it clearly did here. Right. So let's get back to what Michelle was saying about victims being relatable, which ties into everything we're talking about right now. Sabrina is one of the very few Vietnamese people in this community. A racial bias played in. I think that consciously or unconsciously, if it's not somebody relatable, it's just not interesting enough. The U.S. Census Bureau says by the year 2000, in the city of Grand Junction, white people made up almost 92% of the population. Asians only made up 0.8% of people in this area. So that staggering difference inevitably affected how people related to or essentially gave a shit about Sabrina's disappearance compared to the two other women. 
And we can only see things in hindsight now, but imagine if more focus groups, more searches, more posters, etc. were happening at this time. Could Sabrina have been found immediately after her disappearance? Michelle's efforts only went so far when she started talking to detectives. And Michelle really cared about Sabrina and Daniel, and she felt compelled to help. But again, she was 22 years old, this was back in 1997, and she was receiving conflicting messages from law enforcement. After we got through the interview portion, the detective that I talked to, he had said, you know, if the media wants to talk to you, please don't give them a lot of the details you gave us. Like, don't tell them the full story. Right now, just talk to us because it's really important that these details stay with us. Which at the time, I was like, you know, of course, you're the police. But that kind of held me back from even trying to reach out to the media. And that led to another thing that I have a lot of regrets about. Her brothers came to town. And I wish in retrospect that I would have kind of talked to them a little differently. So I wish I would have talked to her brothers. I wish I would have just said, you know, the police said what they said, but you're her brothers. I'm going to tell you everything I know. I wish I would have. Not that I think it would have made a big difference, but I think that probably they walked away from that interaction feeling pretty dejected. Not to mention, if you are going to be the squeaky wheel for law enforcement to take a case seriously, it helps to be the partner of, the family of. Yeah. She, you know, she discussed during her interview being at in this weird category. Like, she's a woman who I worked for. I felt very bonded to her. I felt very bonded to her son. But as far as carrying the torch, I didn't know if I was... Yeah, they're going to be like, who the hell are you? Exactly. Exactly. Especially in 1997. And she felt that insecurity. She's like, I wrote letters to people. I did everything I could. But she's like, I also didn't want to overstep. And I'm sure she didn't even know like some of her close family just because she did know her in this very specific way that, yeah, it would be, I'd feel that insecurity as well, where it's like you're trying to advocate for somebody, but you don't feel extremely comfortable doing so. Yeah. Right. I remember th- this is 1997 we're talking about. It's not now. And it's very easy to think that, oh, wow, even somebody that was a friend can actually build up a cause. But it's so it's so hard to do back then. Yeah. Now we've got true crime podcasts. We've got, got social media groups. We have access to all the forums and resources. You know, Michelle didn't have any of that in 97. So she had no idea how to advocate for Sabrina. She didn't really know how to get loud. She just listened to what the police said. So this entire time while Sabrina's case has slowed to a halt, there's no sign of Sabrina, no activity on any of her credit cards, and years are passing by. So what is Sabrina's husband up to, and who's taking care of Daniel? When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the First Degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So here's what happens. Basically, a custody battle over Daniel had unfolded between Sabrina's parents and family and Marcus. But without proof that Sabrina had actually been murdered, there was no way to prove at that point that Marcus was a murderer and therefore unfit and undeserving of having custody over Daniel. And I know that now, if you guys are listening to this in 2021, there's been several cases where, you know, uh, convictions have been secured without bodies. But this was not the case in 97. I don't Mm -hmm. even know what the first precedent-setting case was where there was a, a murder conviction without a body, but... This was not the norm then. It was like no body, no crime, pretty much. So there's no way to deny Marcus custody of their son. They wanted custody of Daniel. There was a court hearing on that. Marcus was able to retain custody of Daniel. 
which I have to wonder if there had been more press on the story and her family would have had all that press where they could come in with all these news articles and TV spots and say, this guy most likely killed his wife and he also abandoned this child in a hotel if the judge would have made the same determination. Within a year after Sabrina's disappearance, Marcus sold the Melrose Hotel. The hotel that Sabrina was so proud of. The hotel that became her passion project and her pride and joy. He only kept half of the money. The other half went to Sabrina's estate. And since he had full custody of Daniel, he sent Daniel to go live with his mother in England. And Marcus took one last trip to Las Vegas to gamble and do God knows what else before he followed suit and joined Daniel overseas. And once Marcus was out of the country, anyone holding out hope for justice for Sabrina had all but resigned to the cruel reality of what's happened here. Marcus had gotten away with murder. By 1999, Marcus Bebb Jones had relocated back to Britain after the disappearance of his wife, Sabrina, from Dinosaur National Park in Colorado. And in the year that followed her disappearance, he had sold the couple's beloved Melrose Hotel before fighting Sabrina's family for custody of their son, Daniel, and moving him overseas with him. And for all intents and purposes, it appeared that Marcus had gotten away unscathed for the murder of his wife. And just try to imagine being a member of Sabrina's family. The guy who probably murdered her then takes their son to live on another continent. It's crushing. And despite the years flying by, Michelle never forgot about Sabrina. And at times she struggled to come to terms with coming in such close contact with this tragic event. You're trying to balance the happiness of your life with this thing that like hangs inside of you. And I was really heartbroken that he had Daniel. It bothered me so much. I never saw Daniel again after that night. That was like the night that I'd watched him. I actually think in my garage, I still have a teddy bear and a blanket that belonged to Daniel. The stuff that he had in his cubby at the daycare center, nobody knew what to do with. And so they said, why don't you take it? And I think I still have it. The lack of media attention didn't stop Michelle from Googling Sabrina's name to see if, by some grace of God, there was a development in the case. One night, I was just searching on Google for any information on the case, and I found out that she had been found. And she had been found, like, several months before I was looking. And by this point, Michelle had moved from Grand Junction, so she wouldn't have been privy to local news without actively searching. But her mom did still live in the Grand Junction area. The next day, I called my mom, and I was like, why didn't you tell me? And my mom said, because I didn't know. And my mom still lived in Grand Junction. And my mom follows the news. It's heartbreaking to hear, but evidently, even the discovery of Sabrina's body didn't prove to be worth the big news. I think all that was found was her skull, as I understand. And that's gruesome. And, you know, I don't like to think about that part. She was found in between Grand Junction and Dinosaur, which was frustrating. Sabrina's skull had been deserted in a field. And geographically speaking, she was found in an area between Dinosaur National Park and Grand Junction. According to records, in the location where Sabrina's skull was found, there were purple thistle flowers growing everywhere. And this is significant because remember what police found under the van that was searched? These same purple thistle flowers. 
and this connects the van to this geographical location. A forensic examination was performed on the skull, and the results suggested that Sabrina was shot dead because of a bullet hole that was present. So clearly, the discovery of Sabrina's remains were emotionally conflicting. It was confirmation for everyone of the cruel fate she had met, but at least they had some answers. There was an aspect of closure that came along with the discovery. But also, there was finally some excitement, some hope over the possibility of finally being able to prosecute Marcus for killing his wife. Now that they had her remains, this shouldn't be a problem, right? Well, you would think. Michelle believed that it was only a matter of time before they arrested Marcus. I thought, well, here we go. And I wait. And I wait. And I wasn't sure because she was found in a different county. Grand Junction is Mesa County. She was found in Garfield County. And I think they have my statement. They're probably working on the extradition right now. Waited, waited, waited. Nothing is really happening. And that went for years. So I bet you're wondering, what exactly is Marcus doing in England? What is he feeling? Is he feeling the heat by this point, especially with the discovery of Sabrina's body? Well, it turns out, if you didn't pick up on this from his frequent Vegas trips, Marcus really liked to gamble. And it's one of the things that he was doing every time he went there, besides spending all their money on shopping and Ferraris and bullshit like that. And apparently, once he was back in England, after having killed Sabrina, he took up gambling professionally within the British poker circuit. In 2004, after Sabrina's skull had been found, he had no idea the case back in the U.S., was picking up steam again. And obviously, something that we're spending a decent amount of time talking about is the lack of media attention for Sabrina. So here's where the irony really comes in. It was actually media attention that was unrelated to this case that turns the tides in the favor of justice. Fresh from his victory in the Grosvenor Grand Prix back in October last year, and entering the final table with 158,500 chips, our nice round of applause for Marcus Bebjerg. All right, so we got Marcus. We got him winning this uh, this big poker tournament in England, and we've got a picture here. If you if you Google Marcus Bev Jones, winner of British poker tournament, some some words like that, you'll see this picture. And we got a bald British guy. He looks so British. He's holding up a big fake ticket, which calls him the winner. Yep. Um, blissfully unaware of his soon to be fate, he looks like a huge piece of shit asshole <laughs> he really does look at his little grin i just hate yeah. this guy no he's definitely looking smug he's like i did it i want all this money i'm gonna be living my best life and he just yeah he looks like a little smug bald fuck not a care not a care in the world nothing behind that and also i was looking to see if you could you know zooming in on the on the picture to see if there was any remnants of this injury that he had from the gunshot wound. There was nothing. Oh, interesting. I didn't even well, think about that. His face looks that. a little lopsided. I mean, he might just be symmetrical. He might just be a potato yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> his potato face. The whole thing about this being irony where this this unwanted attention, well, this probably wanted attention, right, is the thing that drums the case back up. This is a psychopath's or sociopath's downfall all the time. The narcissism. The narcissism 
the narcissism is their Achilles heel. It really is. It, it always fucking, it always fucking gets them in the end because they cannot stop and they need the attention, whatever way it is. It always catches up to them. I bet you one police officer that was taking this seriously or someone in the DA's office saw this and was like, fuck you, dude. Like, yeah. maybe, like, it would have been too much of a pain in the ass to, like, do the extradition and do all that. But look at this fucking guy holding his fake ticket that's worth lots of money, thinking he's, like, the king of the world. Fuck no. And you know what? He baited law enforcement into going after him, and he deserves everything that happens. Yeah. Sorry, dude. So this poker tournament would be a turning point that was long overdue. And then Marcus won a poker tournament. In England, I think it was like 90,000 pounds. So I think about $100,000 US, which is, you know, a pretty good win. But when he won the poker tournament, that pro- I think had journalists, they maybe made some connections. And it's possible that the Garfield County had their Google alerts on, but that poker tournament is kind of, I think, what started the avalanche of of activity. And here's the thing, like you guys are talking about, people capable of murder are often narcissists, self-obsessed and attention-seeking. It's incredible that the press about Marcus's win compelled Colorado investigators working Sabrina's case to start working towards actually extraditing him to face those murder charges. This guy could have easily just laid low, but he just couldn't do it. Nope. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Anyways, in 2008, 11 years after Sabrina first vanished, and four years after the discovery of Sabrina's skull, Garfield County law enforcement contacted Michelle so she could be re-interviewed. And although Michelle had moved from the state, she was actually scheduled to visit family in the Grand Junction area that very same week, and she sat down with them. And we, like, we went over kind of basically just everything that I had gone over with the Mesa County detectives in Grand Junction. They told me they were going to like go to England and extradite him. Finally, in November of 2009, Scotland Yard authorities arrested Marcus Bebb Jones at his home where he lived with his mother and son, a mommy's boy. How surprising. Shocking. 12 years had passed since the day Michelle babysat Daniel while Marcus murdered Sabrina. Daniel was now a teenager. Marcus would not make this process easy. He appealed the extradition, but this was to no avail. Two months later, a British judge permitted the transfer to Colorado as long as the death penalty was taken off the table by American authorities. Marcus would finally return to the United States 12 years after he fled from his crime. This was long overdue, and there's absolutely no reason that it should have taken 12 years to bring Marcus to justice. And taking Sabrina's life wasn't even the only thing Marcus was guilty of. And one thing I found out when he was extradited, and this is probably one of the most heartbreaking details. Daniel is on his dad's side. I think he had told Daniel that his mom had died of cancer. Truly fucking disgusting. Just lie to him his entire life. And to be so selfish that you would not only deny your child their parent, their mother, who loved them, but also deny them the truth. Once Marcus was in Colorado, a court date was set, and Michelle was sent a subpoena. Then she received word that the trial date had moved, 
And then, ultimately... I was told, there's not going to be a trial. He's pleading guilty. We've reached a plea. And the plea was second-degree murder. After more than a decade since Sabrina disappeared, Marcus had finally taken responsibility for her murder. Before the sentencing, Daniel actually wrote to the court begging them to have mercy on his father. But as part of Marcus's plea deal, the judge gave him the maximum sentence of 20 years behind bars. In his statement to the judge, Marcus said, quote, I didn't intentionally kill Sabrina, but what I did was wrong and I ask for your forgiveness. Michelle says it's just another one of his lies. He said it was a heat of passion. I know it's a lie. In my heart, I don't think it's true. I don't think they had a lot of physical evidence to challenge that. But the plea, in my opinion, the amount of time he is getting in prison, he'll be out of prison in 2026. Okay, this whole idea that it's this heat of passion thing. All right, hear me out. So when Sabrina calls Michelle on that Tuesday in September of 1997, she says to Michelle, we really need this time. Yeah. So that lends to this idea that, like, maybe Marcus was like, we need this, Sabrina. We need to go have a day alone in the wilderness far, far (laughs) from where anyone can contact us. Okay? Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Then he has a gun with him? Yep. Exactly. Yeah, he's just happened. Yeah. What? No. And I feel like the only reason that he got away with this is because so much time had passed because like, and you couldn't, I bet you you couldn't even prove whether it was a bullet hole or something from the elements. You know what I mean? Well, and if it was just, I mean, yeah, they're not really working with that much at that point because so much time had passed. So it's like, right. That's yeah, it, it, it is what it is. But what you can see is the, um, the, the, conspiracy afterwards to conceal what he's done, which says volumes about him, you know? Um, Why did he even have a gun? It's, you know what I mean? Like he works at a hotel. It's just, it's crazy. And I I don't buy it for a second. It's some scary shit. But, you know, what Michelle was saying is right. We checked the Colorado Department of Corrections website and Marcus is set for a parole hearing in January of next year, 2022. It's insane. He's scheduled for release by October of 2026. So hopefully he doesn't get out earlier than expected, but he could, guys. This mm-hmm. is this is this dude went unscathed for 12 years, served like a handful of years, and now is already up for parole. And look what he's done. It's really truly like women mean more than this. Really. It's just bananas to me. And at the end of the day. I think when it's all said and done, he's going to do like 13, 14 years. It is awful. The amount of time he's doing in prison is not nearly enough. Obviously, Michelle thinks about Sabrina and the travesty that was her murder all the time to this day. This is not something that you easily forget about, especially with the realization that you were watching their son while it happened. There were two things that I absolutely 100% know she loved. And the first and foremost was Daniel, and the second was her hotel. And she cared about the town, but the town didn't care about her. We asked Michelle what kind of impact this experience had on her. I kind of have to think about my life as the person I was before this happened and the person I became after. I would have, like, basically panic attacks. If I was like out in the open around a lot of people, I would just feel really scared. And, you know, at the time there wasn't as much 
out there about anxiety and things like that. Mental health wasn't quite the conversation it is now. I think there's probably like other things in my life that kind of, this became kind of a catch-all for trauma. Um, but it definitely like exasperated a lot of feelings. I don't think I ever trusted the same way after that. All right. Well, a huge thank you to Michelle for being our first degree for this episode. And last week, if you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook page. We're talking true crime all the time and check back tomorrow because we'll have a brand new killing time up in our feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But, but not, not that, that close. close. Fudge. Happy oh Fudgetta Snake Day. <laughs> what the Whatever fuck? That Specifically, is. it was a cobra. <laughs> was there another one? Throw fudge at a cobra. That's what we're ending with. Right. Happy Dentist Day. You don't even have to day. throw fudge at a cobra. Please don't unsubscribe them. because of this day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, I didn't make it up. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing and writing by Taylor Rogers, and producing by Ellen Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode are the BBC, the Post Independent, the Daily Mail, the Aspen Daily News, the Denver Post, court documents, and as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.